Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to the first chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 1. We're preaching through the book of Acts this school year. And uh, last week we had an introductory sermon, an overview of the whole book, some of its themes, its background, and interpretive challenges. And this week we're diving into the whole first chapter together, um, which is a, is a bit to cover. So there's some wonderful truth in this first chapter. It really sets up uh, the main event in, in the book of Acts happens in chapter 2. It's the, the event from which all the rest unfolds and even is continuing to unfold now. It's a critical moment, a pivotal moment in all of history. Acts chapter 1 serves to set up that chapter and also to, as a bridge back to the Gospel of Luke. Um, the part- a particular note in this chapter is the ascension of Jesus Christ into glory. And that's uh, told to us here in a very brief statement, but we want to sort of camp out for a bit on it because it is a a powerful truth that we need to understand better and appreciate more. Let's get into Acts chapter 1 and read it. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to, his, to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven." Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they entered entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, 
which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Then a parenthetical statement. Now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hekaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, this is Peter again, it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore it is necessary that the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the book of Acts is a sequel to the Gospel of Luke, and like a sequel, it starts with a little recap of episode one, volume one, Luke's gospel. Luke begins by reiterating who he's writing to. He's writing to this man named Theophilus. We don't know a lot about who Theophilus was, but we do know why Luke was writing to him. He tells us so in the very beginning of the gospel of Luke. He wants this man, Theophilus, to have an exact knowledge of the things that he has been taught. He's He's done careful research and he's laid it out in chronicle order so that this man, Theophilus, can have an exact knowledge of what he's heard what he's been taught orally. And we have this man, Theophilus, and Luke's taking an interest in him to think because we have, because of this, an exact knowledge ourselves through the Gospel of Luke and of the Acts of many things we would not otherwise know. Reflecting back on his Gospel, Luke says in verse 1, this, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. That day began is really key. This is Luke's way of, 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 of implying that he is not done telling us about what Jesus is doing and teaching. The first account, the gospel that he wrote, is about all that Jesus began to do and teach, but he's not done telling us about what Jesus is doing. Jesus may now be in heaven, as he's about to ascend to the Father in this first chapter. He may now be in heaven, but he is not done doing and teaching. The book of Acts is about the continuing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit through his church. That's what the book of Acts is about. This account of Jesus being taken up into heaven is what we call his ascension, the ascension of Jesus into glory. And that's recounted both at the, in the last chapter, the last verses of Luke, and also here again for us in Acts chapter 1. Before we get to that, though, Luke wants to remind us of some things that have been happening in these last 40 days of Jesus' life on earth, the final 40 days of his ministry on earth, after his resurrection from the dead, before his ascension, there's there's an interim period where he appears to his apostles and does some good work with them. 
He, Luke reminds us that Jesus presented himself alive many times with convincing proofs. Infallible is the word that that really means, not just convincing, but infallible. He made it beyond dispute. The times he showed up, the way he showed up, he had people touch him, put their fingers in the holes in his hands. He ate fish and other food in front of them so that they realized he's not a ghost. This is real. He is alive. Many infallible proofs. We're told that Jesus gave orders to his disciples during this period. This is probably a reference ultimately to the Great Commission, but many other instructions and commands that he might have given them in this time. And it says interestingly in verse 2 that he gave these commands to them, these orders, by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Especially if you know what's going to come in in chapter 2, which is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church. He says he gave these commands during this interim period by the Holy Spirit. So whatever we make of chapter 2 and the outpouring of the fullness of the Spirit does not mean that we conclude that the Spirit was inactive or not present in the, rest, in the previous scriptures or in the lives of these very men. The Spirit rested upon Jesus to help him fulfill his ministry, and he was working in the disciples even prior to Acts 2. Luke reminds us that Jesus continued in this time to teach and prepare his disciples during these days. He spoke to them, Luke says in verse 3, things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was a feature of Jesus' preaching and teaching, and it would become a major theme in the apostles' own message to the world, the kingdom of God. And Luke is driving us to a final encounter with the apostles, one just prior to the ascension, at that, at that event, just before he ascends. We've driven to there in verse 4. Just before his ascension, Jesus gave the disciples the specific command, Luke says, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said you heard of from me. So you've, you've known this. It's going to happen. Go to Jerusalem and wait for it to come. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this is about to happen, guys, is the message this thing that I've been telling you about that you've heard about. John's baptism was a baptism of preparation, repentance and preparation for this fuller spiritual baptism which was about to be brought about. The prophet Joel spoke of days of fulfillment being marked by a widespread outpouring and manifestation of the Spirit of God and that was about to finally be fulfilled just a few days from then. And we see and Jesus, as Jesus commanded them to go and to wait in Jerusalem, we see them in just a few verses later doing just that, obediently waiting for this promise to come. Now all this was covered, this is just a summary of the end of the Gospel of Luke for, that, that, that uh, Luke is giving us here as, to, as a sort of setup for what's to come, but also as a bridge back to a reminder of things that we've already learned in the Gospel. In verse 6, though, we start to see some truly new material some new events, some new facts and statements that we've not heard before in the scriptures. At this final encounter, just, at the, at, just prior to the ascension, this final encounter with the disciples, we read that the disciples put a question to Jesus. Verse 6, they ask, Is now the time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? What do we make of this question? Well, it's clear that the, the disciples continue, even at this late date, to maintain their hope of seeing the kingdom of God realized in the restoration of Israel's national independence. 
They want to see the kingdom of God realized in the, in the give it, granting independence to the nation of Israel. They're under Roman occupation. They've, they're really frustrated with the situation. They don't have to enjoy the freedoms or the power or the control of their own lives and domain. They have some freedoms, but it's definitely under the authority of Rome. They're frustrated with this. One of the disciples, in fact, is named, uh, is it Simon the Zealot? Which probably includes, this is not Simon Peter, Simon the Zealot, to distinguish him. But it probably implies that he came from one of the groups of people who were like given to uprising to try to overthrow the Roman government. That's where he came from. He was a part of that group before he became a disciple of Jesus Christ. They want this situation to change. It's pretty typical for preachers and commentators at this point to beat up on these guys for asking this question. There they go again, showing how ignorant and worldly-minded they are. And they have it coming, because over the course of the Gospels, they've been pretty petty, pretty fleshly-minded, showing their ignorance time and time again, even though Jesus is patiently teaching them, they're just not getting it. This is the way they, they're even arguing and squabbling over who's the greatest, who's going to sit at Jesus' right hand in the kingdom. But this question, it may not be as crazy as some people make it out to be. Old Testament prophecy, many Old Testament prophecies, predicted a Messiah who would come as a restorer of Israel. This wasn't coming out of nowhere. It wasn't just coming from their experience here and now, but they had prophecies that they could think back to and hope in. I want to give you an example of one of these from the, from the prophet Amos in chapter 9. Amos writes, in that day, in a day of fulfillment that's to come, in that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. There's many examples throughout the prophets of promises for the restoration of Israel. So given Jesus' announcement to them that just in a few days, this powerful uh, promise of the Holy Spirit's gonna be fulfilled, which harkens back to the prophet Joel, it's natural, I think, for them to be thinking, well, maybe other promises are coming due at this time too. Maybe this is the moment that Jesus is finally going to restore to us the kingdom. What they still don't understand though, even at this late date, is the spiritual nature of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus said to Pilate when he was before Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God is not a political or a national institution. It's a spiritual kingdom that establishes its rule and authority in the hearts of men. It does have implications, all kinds of implications for politics and culture and law and society, but those things spring from changed hearts where the throne of Jesus Christ is established in authority over our wills and our allegiances and our affections. This is what Thomas Watson, if you're going to read one old dead guy, a Puritan author, you should read Thomas Watson. In his book, A Body of Divinity, he says this, where does Christ rule as king? He answers, he sets up his throne where no other king does. 
He rules the will and affections. His power binds the conscience. He subdues men's lusts. Has Jesus Christ set up his authority in your heart? Has the spiritual kingdom of God come to you? Young men and women, has the spiritual authority of Jesus Christ been established in your hearts? He's come as king to set up his throne there and to change your way of thinking and of being, perceiving and acting. Your whole nature brought into subjection to his authority. And from there, to bear all kinds of good fruit in this world. How does Jesus respond to their question? Not by telling them no. They're asking, is is now the time? Is it finally gonna happen now? He doesn't say no. He just says, it's not for you you to know. Verse seven, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Do you know there are things that we're not to know? Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a great verse. All of you should know it by heart. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So we, there are things revealed. We can have them and enjoy them and live by them. They're, we're accountable to God for those things. We're to know them, but we're also to respect that there are secret things that belong to the Lord and not to us. And we're to say, I trust God with that and not try to peer into what can't be known and is not for us to know. It would not be helpful for them to know or God would have told them. And I can think if their mission is to go, he's about to set before them their mission in response to bring them back to the here and now. They're wanting to, you know, they're thinking about is the kingdom gonna be established now? And he brings them back in response to the mission that he's given them to be his witnesses. It's not helpful for them actually to know when this is, and when this is finally gonna be fulfilled. What they need to focus on is right what he's putting before them right now, and that's where he takes them. Verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. He reminds them of their mission And he doesn't tell them how this or when this or how fast this is all going to be carried out, what it's going to look like. It's taken now 2,000 years. It might take 8,000 more. I don't know. It's not for us to know. It might take two more. We don't know. But this is the scope of the mission. They are to go to Jerusalem, wait for the Spirit to fall, and from there to spread the message of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. What comes now is an account of the ascension of Jesus into heaven, verses 9 and 11. Luke proceeds to give us a brief account of Jesus' physical departure from earth. He who had descended was about to ascend again far above the heavens, as Paul says in Ephesians. Acts 1.9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
Luke just gives us a very simple, kind of straightforward, short account of this thing. But this is a major thing that just takes place. This is a major event. I think uh, we're going to camp out here for just a minute and think about the significance of what's going on with Jesus' ascension into heaven. Because I think we way undervalue its significance. We undervalue it liturgically, as, at least as our church. We, we, we make a big deal out of Christmas and the advent of Jesus Christ. We make a big deal out of Holy Week with the, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, Easter, the main event, and then we pretty much don't think about those kinds of seasonal events anymore. But there is, in some traditions, a, an Ascension Sunday where they come to this theme of the Ascension. I'm starting to talk myself into reviving that here among us. No promises, but, but as I think about the significance of this event, it's a big deal, huge deal. And here's how I want to help us get into it. You remember when Jesus said in John um, to his disciples, I'm going away and I tell you it's to your advantage that I go away. Do you remember him saying that? Every time I hear that, I have to remind myself, no, wait, how on earth again? Is that an advantage? What kind of sense does that make? That's sort of crazy talk. And it must have sounded crazy to the, to the disciples at the time. It's to your advantage, men, that I'm going away. How do we come to understand that? How could it possibly be to our advantage that Jesus would leave us and depart from here and not be with us? Scripture gives us a lot of reasons that it's to our advantage that Jesus goes away. And I want to, I think they kind of follow along or correspond pretty well to the three offices that Jesus is said to fulfill. The office of priest, king, and prophet. Jesus ascended to the Father to be our priest forever. The whole worship system of the Old Covenant, the tabernacle of Moses, the later temple that followed it, and all the ceremonies and rituals, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the whole business was a physical earthly thing pointing to a heavenly and spiritual reality, to what Hebrews calls, the, the, he, Hebrews calls all those earthly things from the Old Covenant, copies. Copies, that's the word it uses. They're copies of spiritual realities. What they do is they pointed people for the time that they were in operation to realities about the heavenly temple where God dwells, about how a sinner like you and me could have any way of approaching such a holy and awesome God by way of sacrifice and blood to pay for and atone for sin and how we could come into his presence and enjoy fellowship with him. The earthly tabernacle and the worship of the temple of, of Israel pointed to these eternal, true realities. They were mere copies, shadows of that thing. Look in Hebrews 8 with me. Hebrews says, We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. He's comparing, the author is comparing all, Jesus, the faithful high priest, who, who now serves at the right hand of God in the true heavenly tabernacle with the ceremonies that came before it and how inferior by comparison they are. Now that Jesus has come and now that he has entered that heavenly temple and he is there as our sacrifice and as our priest and as minister for us, 
We don't need these ceremonies anymore. He brings them to an end. That's the message of Hebrews. Jesus serves in the heavenly tabernacle as a priest for us before his Father. How does he do this? By interceding for us, by pleading the merits of his sacrifice before the Father continually. Look at Romans 8.34. Paul writes, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. That's what he's there for. He's interceding. What does interceding mean? He's there as our advocate, as our prayer warrior, as the, as the one who's saying, I know, Father, I know he's a sinner, she's a sinner, she's a sinner, he's a sinner, I know, but they're my people. I paid for them with my own blood. See my wounds? See my scars? Ignore that sin. Forgive that sin. It's forgiven. I have paid for it. Be merciful to them. I know that that irritates you, frustrates you. These are very poor words that I'm using. Angers you. It's forgiven, Lord. Remember my sacrifice. That's what he's there doing before the Father in heaven. He's pleading for us. He's advocating for us. He's praying for us. Do you need that? Is this to your advantage? <laughs> that Jesus has gone away into this tabernacle of God to, as your high priest, always living to intercede for you? Yes. Paul in Ephesians talks about how we are seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Remember this? What does that mean? It means that Jesus is seated in the heavenlies and we are identified with him and he's there representing you and me before his father. His father looks on his son and, he, and as he looks on you and me, he is seeing the perfections and the glory in, of his son. This is what Jesus is doing right now for us in heaven. And we need that. It's to our advantage understatement of the year. Jesus ascended to the Father so that he might be exalted to the highest place and established as king over all things. Luke describes Jesus' ascension from earth's perspective. The men are standing there and they see him lifted up into the sky and they watch him disappear into a cloud. That's from earth's perspective. As amazing as that is, listen to what the prophet Daniel how he describes it from heaven's perspective. So have you guys ever read Paradise Lost? John Milton's Paradise Lost? It's like what Marvel wishes it could be. <laughs> Serious. It's got all these amazing depictions and descriptions of, of the heavenly realm. You know, they're made up, but they're sort of biblical and they're amazing. They're imaginative. They really help you imagine the, the, the glory of the heavenly realm. You should read it. Um, but here's, here's the prophet Daniel who is describing this same event, the ascension, from um, the perspective of heaven. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days, to God, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, 
glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Isn't that awesome? I don't think the disciples had a clue at that moment the significance of what was taking place right then before them. Now here's the point I want to make. This is Paul brings this idea of Jesus' ascended glory and rule and makes it clear that that's to our advantage. Ephesians 1, 20 to 23. It's hard to know where to, how to drop the needle on in the middle of any of Paul's long sentences, but I'm going to start with the word raised. He raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So just like Daniel. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church. He gave Jesus as head over all things to you and me, to our advantage, to look out for us, to see to our needs, every single circumstance and detail of the universe is under his absolute and complete and constant control. And all of that is to the benefit and good of his church. To shepherd his sheep, to watch over their souls and bring them safely into his glory and kingdom. Is that to your advantage? Jesus ascended also so that he might extend his prophetic ministry to the entire world through the mouth of his apostles. The immediate rationale that Jesus gives in John for why, he's, why it's to their advantage that he go away is so that the helper will come. If I, go away, if I don't go away, the helper won't come. But since I'm going, he will come. And he will, what will he do? He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He will convict the world of these things. Jesus is intending to extend his prophetic witness and rule over this world through this helper who was to come. And how does this helper normally work? Through the mouth of his people, particularly in this instance through his apostles who are about to be sent out into the world to communicate the message of the kingdom with the help of this helper who is about to be poured out upon them. And he says, I, he's saying to these men, when he's in the upper room with them in John, he's saying, it's to your advantage. And he says, this helper, he will, bring, he will call to mind everything I've said to you. He will, in Acts, we read that this helper will empower them and give them great boldness in their preaching. He will help them in, write inspired scripture so that we'll have this Bible that we can look to and be instructed by and know what, what God requires and what God says. Is it to your advantage to have a Bible? Is it to your advantage to have the preaching of the apostles going as far as Bloomington here? It's to our advantage. It's to our advantage that Jesus went away in at least these ways, probably a lot more. But the good news is this is not a permanent situation, being separated physically from the Lord. Paul says it's much better to be with the Lord 
God knows that too. And he is ultimately prepared or designed that we will be forever with the Lord, forever with the Lord. And that's what the angels, as the men are standing there looking into heaven, they're gazing in the sky, amazed at this thing, wondering what's going on. The angels appear and they say, men of Galilee, why are you looking into the sky? This Jesus who has gone away from you in this way will return again just as you've seen him go. They don't know when, we don't know when, but we know he will come. We know the way of his return in the clouds of glory with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And he will remake the world and he will dwell with us forever. So it's not a permanent separation that we're facing but only a temporary one. The rest of this chapter is about their waiting in Jerusalem for the promise to be fulfilled of the Spirit's coming and Peter's making the best use of time that he can, um, trying to fill this vacancy that's left open by the death of Judas. Let's look at this quickly. So the apostles obediently returned to Jerusalem which is said to be a Sabbath day's journey from Mount Olivet. This is the only occurrence of that expression in all of Scripture, a Sabbath day's journey, but it seems to be a pointing to a, rabbinic, a rabbinical tradition of maybe a journey that's just about 2,000 feet or 2,000 meters in length, just a short journey. It came, as, it came a, a way of, of referring to just a short journey. Arriving back in the city, as Jesus commanded them, the apostles go to the upper room where they were staying in verse 13. This is likely the same upper room that Jesus had set aside and, and, and shared his, his, the Lord's Supper with them just a few days before. All 11 disciples are listed here by name. So I misspoke last week. I said that only a few disciples or apostles are mentioned in the book. I'm partly right. They're mentioned here, and then most of them never again. But they're mentioned here by name, all of them, so that we understand that they're all there waiting for the Spirit to be poured out and that they're all part of what God is going to do in the world. There are others, though, who are mentioned to be there, too. We see that there are some women there. We see that Jesus' mother, Mary, is with them, and Jesus' brothers. Jesus had four brothers. We read about them in Matthew and Mark. He mentions them by name, or they mention them by name. James and Joseph, which is another way of saying Joseph, Judas and Simon. So James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon were, Ju were Jesus' brothers, half-brothers, because Jesus' father was God. It's very sweet, actually, that they're here because John had, in John 7, specifically mentioned that at least early on in Jesus' ministry, they did not believe in him. It says in, uh, he, he, it's, it's, I actually don't have it here, but he says they actually wanted him to go minister somewhere else because they did not believe in him. But something had happened. They'd lately come around, and here they are, gathered with the apostles and the, faith, the few faithful disciples, huddled in this room together, waiting on the promise of the Father. Waiting is hard. Are you waiting for something? Have you, can you remember or think of a time when you're waiting 
for something, something good maybe to come about, something that you've long hoped for, something that you even think the Lord has promised you, but you're waiting. I think the kind of, the, 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 the main event of waiting that even to this day sticks out in my mind and marks my life is waiting for my driver's license. You guys remember those days of waiting for your driver's license, the freedom and the independence that comes with that? I remember how it was like agonizing, frustrating, difficult to wait for, those day, for that day to come. Waiting is hard. Jesus had sent these folks back into the hot zone of Jerusalem. It was not a safe place. This is where he had been killed. They're in danger there. They're in close quarters. Times 120 people are gathered together in this room. It's a situation ripe for irritation, impatience, complaining, and fighting. How did they spend their waiting hours? Verse 14. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Isn't that amazing? I think that's pretty incredible. I can't even imagine us being stuck in this large room for 10 days. 240 hours is how long they were waiting and praying together for the, for the promise to come because it was 10 days after Jesus ascended that the Spirit was finally poured out. What kind of a waiter are you? Are you a patient, peaceable, prayerful, trusting Waiter? Daniel, you're not, are you? No. It's hard to wait. Not very many people are patient by nature, are they? But so we see God's work in, in this body. We see their faithfulness. We see their trust in the Lord as they devote themselves to prayer. Prayer is something we should devote ourselves to as we wait upon the Lord. At some point during these days of waiting, Peter decides to see to the one constructive thing he can think to do, fill the vacancy left by the death of Judas. Some have suggested, I feel a little defensive for Peter here, some have suggested that Peter was not acting in good faith here, he was being presumptuous, he getting ahead of the Lord, deciding to take matters into his own hands, kind of like Sarah did with Abraham, some version of not trusting the Lord fully and getting ahead of the Lord. I mean, after all, the Apostle Paul is coming, and just a few chapters later, and God is going to call him to be an apostle. Maybe Peter missed, missed God's direction here, misread the scriptures, and got ahead and chose this man, Matthias. People say this. This is a claim that's made. Others find fault with Peter here, not necessarily for the, the choice of Matthias, but for the method that, Paul, that Peter uses here to go about making this choice, casting lots. Well, there you go. He's just, he's unscript, well, he's what? Superstitious, that's the word. He's a superstitious, kind of fleshly, unspiritual way of making a decision. People make that claim too. I believe that both aspects of this decision are biblically defensible under the circumstances, and nowhere is Peter rebuked for the leadership that he exhibits in this moment. What does he do? Verse 15, at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together, and he said, 
Now, what does he begin to see, to say? What is he doing here? He begins to reason from the Old Testament scriptures that this thing that they need to do is to fulfill prophecy. He says in verse 16, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled. It's pretty strong language there. The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He betrayed Jesus with a kiss. For he was counted among us and received his share of his ministry. Now, interjected in here is a little parenthetical a statement by the author to give us an understanding of how Jesus died, or Judas died, that there was this field that was purchased with, with the, the betrayal money, and he ends up dying in this, this very field in this really gruesome, horrible way, either by falling or by hanging, and he's eviscerated in the process, and this, too, is fulfillment of prophecy. But but Peter's argument from Scripture continues in verse 16. He says, brethren, this, no, sorry, in verse 20, he says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Those are quotations from Psalms 69 and 109 that Peter is pointing to. Now, these were days of prophetic fulfillment. Lots of things were being fulfilled that had been foretold. The coming of the Messiah, his suffering and his death, his resurrection, his ascension into glory, all foretold by the prophets. These are days of fulfillment. And the apostles, it's natural and right for them to be looking back into the Old Testament and seeing to, and interpreting the things that are going around them and that they're experiencing and doing and justifying them from the scriptures. Jesus himself had recently, very recently, taught them to do this very thing. And he opened up their minds in the process to understand the scriptures that they were interpreting. I want you to see this because this is important for understanding. This, this continues throughout the preaching ministry of these men in, in, in the book of Acts. So I want you to see where it comes from. It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ who gives them this interpretive grid for the scriptures. It's at the end of Luke, in the last chapter. These are, this happens in those days, those interim days, between his resurrection and his ascension. Some of the things he's telling them about are these. So, in Luke 24, verse 25, his first appearance after his resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, there's a couple of disciples walking down the road, and Jesus, they don't recognize him, but he comes and joins them on their journey. And they're talking about the events that are happening in, in Judea or in Jerusalem at this time. And Jesus responds to them and says, verse 25, he says to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Now look, a few verses later, this is another appearance of Jesus. Now with all his disciples together, he says this. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Isn't that amazing? Jesus gives them their, their message. It's in the Old Testament. Now go preach it and declare it. It's being fulfilled. It's been fulfilled. I am the fulfillment. 
declare these things. He gives them this hermeneutic, this interpretive grid for the Old Testament himself. So Peter is not only doing what Jesus himself did, but what Jesus opened up his mind to understand and to do. This isn't the last time Peter will do this. This will be a feature of his preaching as we go along. So using this hermeneutic, this interpretive grid, and this insight that Jesus gave him, Peter sees in the Psalms prophecies concerning Judas, the betrayer, that Judas would die and that another man must take his place. They also had this to go on. Jesus had several times told them that, the, that these men, you men, you 12 men, will sit as rulers and judges over the 12 tribes of Israel. 11 wasn't going to cut it. It needed to be 12. So they proceed to fill this vacancy. Now the text recognizes three qualifications for apostleship. The first two are explicit here, and the third one is implicit. First one that's explicit is, and this, this doesn't go without saying today, so I'm going to say it, that he be a man. That he be a man. God has vested his fatherly authority in the male of the human race, in Adam. And he does not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. And so a man of incredible authority, like an apostle, needs to be a man. It's unapologetic here. It's even in the, the, the word, the language of the psalmist. Let another man take his office. But also that he be a man who had accompanied them, he says, all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up. So somebody who had been along for the whole ride, who'd seen it all, because his job was to be a witness of the resurrection and to declare all the things that Jesus was teach, had taught them to the world. Those are the, two ex first, the, the first two explicit qualifications that we, can, that we see here. And there were two men who met those qualifications. Joseph, who they called Barsabbas, also Justice, a guy so nice they named him thrice. <laughs> and Matthias, two men, Joseph and Matthias. And this leads to the implicit qualification here. Jesus himself must choose an apostle. No man can choose an apostle. No man appoints himself to it, and no, they're not selected by or appointed by democratic vote. Jesus has chosen the apostles. He's the one with the authority to call these men. He had gone up to them and said, come follow me. You follow me. You follow me. Jesus must choose an apostle. So they have a dilemma. How do we have Jesus who's gone choose an apostle? We got two qualified men. So what do they do? They pray. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They pray. And then they turn to an Old Testament practice which had long been in use, casting lots to discern the Lord's will. How do we know how, what, who the Lord chooses? Well, we'll cast lots for it. 
And they drew lots for them, verse 26, and the lot fell to Matthias. And he was added to the 11 apostles to make 12. So under the circumstances, this was a valid method for making this decision. Nothing wrong with it. That being said, it is noteworthy that we don't see a casting of lots ever mentioned again or commended in Scripture. I think this is pretty extraordinary. Remember how last week we talked about things that are um, prescriptive versus descriptive? This is being described. I don't know that it's being prescribed. Pretty sure that it's not. I think this is a pretty unique circumstance. In fact, in Scripture, when, we're, when, we're, when, we're, when we see men being chosen to be pastors or deacons or elders, we don't see them casting lots to see which man God approves of. We see them using their judgment, discerning the Lord's gifting in a man, his qualifications they are to discern. And then there's a, a sense of nomination and of participation and cho- choosing and calling of a man in Scripture. So I think this is not normative for us, but valid under the circumstances. How, should, how do we make critical decisions? A lot of critical decisions to make in life. How do we make them? Prayer, that's normative. They prayed. Seeking counsel. That's the one we don't like. We like to skip that one. We don't like to seek counsel from others because people tend to, people who love us really and are respectable and trustworthy sometimes tell us things we don't want to hear. So we tend to bypass that one. And we look, this is a big one, we look to the revealed word of God to see if our desires are in line with his desires. And if they are, we have a lot of freedom and liberty to make decisions and to go here or to go there. As long as our desires are, are instructed by the word of God and in line with his revealed truth. That's chapter one. Just wait for chapter two. (laughs) Chapter two is really the launch pad for all the rest of human history. It's the big turning point where God starts to bring the gospel to the nations. And this is the empowerment moment for that work to progress. So we look forward to it in hope. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who even in the 40 days after his resurrection didn't waste a moment, but gave himself faithfully in teaching and ministry to his his little flock. Thank you for his example of tender care and service. I pray that we would emulate it ourselves. Thank you for these faithful apostles and the women and the brothers of the Lord who were with them, who were praying, and I pray that we would follow their example as we wait upon you for many things in our lives, that we would be a prayerful people, a patient people, godly in our waiting. And we thank you, Father, for Peter and his leadership and how you used him to build the church. And I pray, Lord, that we would honor his work by building faithfully ourselves in our little corner here at the ends of the earth. 
We pray that you'd bless our study of the book of Acts, Father, and that you would open it up to us and help us to understand its message and its teaching and give us faith and humility to put it into practice and to live by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.